2018, you need to be seen. It's time to come to the aid of America. In 2018, be part of the team. It's time to come to the aid of America. Go to the polls and cast your vote. Welcome to Your Voting Guide by the League of Women Voters. This is Vivian Hart, and I will be your host on behalf of the League of Women Voters of Greater Tucson. We are a nonpartisan organization, and that means that we do not support any political party or candidate. However, we do encourage citizens to be informed about and active in our government. So listening to this program is helping you be informed and hopefully pushing you to be more active. Our goal with this program is to present unbiased information about candidates, the issues, and our voting process relating to the upcoming midterm election on November 6th. We are very pleased to have with us today the two candidates for Superintendent of Public Instruction, Kathy Hoffman and Frank Riggs. This is Vivian Hart with the League of Women Voters of Greater Tucson. My guest today is Kathy Hoffman, candidate for Superintendent of Public Instruction. Welcome. My first question to you is, why are you uniquely qualified to be the Superintendent of Public Instruction? Well, I've worked my entire professional career in Arizona's public schools, and I'm a speech therapist, so I've worked with students across all grade levels as well as all ability levels. And what I aim to do as your next superintendent is to bring that educator's voice to the Department of Education and to elevate the voices of all of our students and teachers. And I, I think it's critically important to have someone that's been in the classroom who's seen exactly how these policies have been affecting our schools and our students. And I think that's what's been missing for, for a long time from our Department of Education. What changes would you make and what would you keep the same in the Superintendent of Public Instruction's office if you're elected? Well, currently, one of the things that, again, has been missing is I, I've been feeling, and what I've been seeing is that there hasn't been a strong advocate for public education as the leader of public education. And while almost everyone in our state is aware of all the issues facing our public schools, such as the, the funding issues, the teacher shortage, these types of issues that are very important to talk about and important to address, but at the same time, one thing that's been missing that I plan to change is also talking about all the positive aspects of public education and talking more about all the achievements of our schools and our teachers, because I think that if we can talk about public education in a, in a positive way, then because we do have so much to be proud of in our public education system here, and then that will encourage people to want to invest in our schools and also encourage young teachers to want to work in our public schools. What do you see as the one or two most critical issues that need to be addressed in this position? So as superintendent, I understand that there are some limitations to my role, that there are many policies that I would like to see implemented that I would need to work with the legislature and the governor to, to see those implemented. But that said, one of the top priorities for our state is to address the teacher shortage crisis. We still have over 1,500 vacancies of teaching positions in our state, and it's, it's awful. I've seen it firsthand. I've had 
I have had colleagues that I know personally leave the state. Arizona was recently ranked the worst state to be a teacher. And we need to address the teacher shortage because it directly impacts the classroom sizes, it affects the teacher's workload, and we know that if we have smaller class sizes and more teachers in the classrooms, then we can have a higher quality of education because the students can get more individualized attention and make sure that all of their needs are being met. And so that would be one of the top issues to focus on. And one of the ways that I'll be addressing that is by, by looking at it broadly. And for example, um, one thing that needs to be addressed is our teachers' benefits and their healthcare packages and their retirement and and also looking at whether at some time in the future, I would love to see our schools offering teachers paid parental leave. I think that would make the teaching profession more attractive to young families. What would you say is the greatest challenge facing public education in Arizona today? The teacher shortage, again. Um, but I think, I think the biggest obstacle has been that we've had years and years of inaction by our state legislature and our governor to fully fund our public schools. Our Arizona schools have had more cuts to public education than any other state in the country. We still have a $700 million deficit from what our schools were receiving a decade ago. And so that has been the greatest obstacle, but that's why we're seeing so many educators like myself stepping up and saying that it's time to have educators in the offices making these types of budgetary decisions because we know how important it is to invest in our schools and that that directly impacts the future of our state and our economic strength as a state. I'm speaking with Kathy Hoffman, candidate for Superintendent of Public Instruction. The 20 by 2020 education legislation will give teachers a 20% pay increase in three years, including 10% in 2018, and also increases funding for support staff and new textbooks and upgraded technology as well as infrastructure. Is that enough to make up for recession-era cuts? If you say yes, why is that? And if not, why not? It's not enough. It's definitely a good start, and I was pleased to see that with the Red for Ed movement that it did put enough pressure on our legislature and governor to finally finally act and finally put more of an investment and in, um, more money, especially towards our, our teacher pay, which has been stagnant for so long. Um, but it's not enough, and one thing, for example, is that the teacher pay increase, the way that Governor Ducey defines that and defines teachers is he's only considering classroom teachers, so it does not include is the special education teachers, the counselors, it doesn't include the paraprofessionals or instructional aides. And so one thing that actually came up this week was I, I heard on the radio and it was announced yesterday that Amazon is planning to give all of their staff a $15 an hour minimum wage. And I was talking with school administrators and they were very concerned about this because there's Amazon warehouses just down the street from them and they're very concerned that they're going to be losing more of their bus drivers and cafeteria workers and paraprofessionals 
who are only making the minimum wage in Arizona, which is going up to $11 an hour this January. And so in order to be competitive with the private sector, our schools do need more funding, especially for all of support staff, not just the classroom teachers, even though that is very important. We need to look at the school holistically and understand that there's a lot of people who work in our schools to make it a successful place for our kids to have a high-quality education. What impact, positive or negative, do you believe charter schools have on neighborhood district schools? Charter schools is a very complex issue. We can't simplify it down to just a positive or a negative impact. I know there's many charter schools out there that have very specialized programs that meet the needs of children who may not be having their needs met in the public schools. I think it's good when families do have these types of academic options. However, some of the biggest issues have been that we've seen corruption in our charter schools. We've seen CEOs making millions of dollars when the teachers are making below average salaries. And I don't think it's even ethical or moral for legislators to be making these types of policies that benefit their own pocketbooks when I think we should be moving in a direction of making sure we have stronger conflict of interest laws. I think there's a lot of room for reforms within the charter school industry. On that note, I think that what I've heard even among charter school leaders is that many of them would also like to see more transparency and accountability because Right now, charter schools have a more negative reputation for their financial standings, but that's not true for every single charter school that every one of them has millions of dollars of profit. And so we, we need to take it more school by school and or charter school by charter school when we're figuring out what types of reforms are needed and, and make sure that there's a more fair system so that our public schools can also be competitive with the charter schools. I'm Vivian Hart with the League of Women Voters of Greater Tucson, and I'm speaking with Kathy Hoffman, candidate for Superintendent of Public Instruction. So Proposition 305 is on the November 6th ballot. A yes vote for that proposition will uphold current legislation that would phase in an expansion of the state's empowerment scholarship accounts. Those are called ESAs to make all public school students eligible to apply for an ESA. And if awarded, these educational funds can be used to attend neighborhood district schools, religious schools, or non-religious private schools. A no vote will repeal the current legislation that will phase in an expansion of the state's ESA program to all students. What is your opinion of Prop 305 and why? I look forward to voting no on Prop 305 this November. I was one of the many people, thousands of people across the state who helped collect signatures with the Save Our Schools organization to make sure that we're not expanding vouchers in Arizona. And the reason is because we need to get serious about fully funding our public schools and making sure that all kids, no matter where they live, have access to a high quality public school in their neighborhood. And these vouchers can only be used for private schools, not for charter schools, and just to make that point clear. And so when we're talking about vouchers, to me it's an issue of access. And I know that most students don't have access 
to a private school because, for one, there's very few private schools in Arizona, and they tend to be concentrated in more affluent neighborhoods. Our private schools do not offer transportation typically. They typically don't have special education or free or reduced lunch. And so when we're saying that students need a voucher because the public schools aren't meeting their needs, and the question is whether or not to expand this program, I have a a strong issue with that because, again, we need to get serious about making sure that our students, all students, no matter where they live, no matter what district, no matter what zip code, that they have access to a high-quality public school in their neighborhood and that we shouldn't be resorting to a Band-Aid solution of giving them the so-called option. It's, It's truly not an option for families that don't have the means and perhaps don't have the access to the private school in the first place. As you mentioned, public schools are required to provide student transportation, school lunches for children from low-income families, and to hire certified teachers or those working toward certification. Charter schools do not have the same requirements, should they? It's an interesting question. I, I think that there are benefits to having some more flexibility in the charter schools because I think that many families do like to have their kids in a school where there might be a more specialized program. And I do support having a more innovative, flexible type of curriculum. So for example, I visited a Montessori school and they have a lot more emphasis on social skills and cooperative learning. I visited another charter school that's a credit recovery program and all of their high school students have actually dropped out of the public schools and were not having their needs met by their local public school. And a fourth of the high school students at that credit recovery program are homeless and a fourth of them are receiving special education services. And because it's a specialized school, it's able to fully staff three social workers, which I think is amazing. And so I I do support that our charter schools have some flexibility. I think that's the whole point of charter schools. But at the same time, I believe that our public schools should also be allowed to have specialized programs and in some ways could benefit from some more flexibility in their own curriculum. And so, for example, in the Mesa School District, they are working on implementing more bilingual and immersion programs, and they're also going to soon be starting more opportunities for students to learn coding. And so while I think it's good for our charter schools to have the specialized curriculum, I also see the benefits to our public schools giving families those same types of opportunities and enriching types of educational experiences. I've been speaking today with Kathy Hoffman, candidate for Superintendent of Public Instruction. Thank you very much, Ms. Hoffman. I appreciate you being with us today. And today I am speaking with Frank Riggs, who is one of the candidates for Superintendent of Public Instruction. Welcome, Mr. Riggs. I'd like to start out with this question. Why are you uniquely qualified to be the superintendent of public instruction? Well, that is certainly probably the most pertinent question to our discussion today. I have a deep and proven leadership record, a record of executive, educational, and legislative leadership built over 
30 years that I believe ideally prepares me for the responsibilities of Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction. And those responsibilities entail a dual role. One is to provide the high-level executive leadership of the Arizona Department of Education and its 700-plus dedicated employees in the core mission of the department, which is to implement and administer all state and federal policies and programs for K-12 education and to manage the almost $10 billion in local, state, and federal funding that we spent on K-12 education annually in our state. I think my record demonstrates that I have those qualities, those strengths that are necessary to be an effective and, and successful superintendent between my record of high-level executive leadership experience and skills, my deep knowledge of education policies and practices at the local, state, and federal level, and lastly, my proven ability as a former member of Congress and chairman of the House of Representatives Subcommittee on Early Childhood, Elementary, and Secondary Education, my proven ability in the political arena to get things done through the legislative process. And that part prepares me for the second aspect, the second role of the superintendent, which is to be the chief advocate, as our state's chief K-12 education officer, for parents, students, educators, the business community, and last but certainly not least, taxpayers in general. What changes would you make and what would you keep the same in the superintendent of public instruction's office if you are elected? Well, it's a little hard to to prejudge that, but I would probably speak in more general terms. I want an ombudsman directly in the superintendent's office to hear concerns or complaints from the field, and by that I mean from rank-and-file educators as well as parents who are the ultimate consumers of K-12 education. I intend to be a visible and accessible superintendent of public instruction. I think I will be far more effective as an advocate, to which I just spoke a moment ago, than the current superintendent, and be able to build cordial and collegial relationships with our legislators, who at the end of the day are the elected representatives of the the people and have the power of the vote and the power of the purse strings, uh, and that I, you know, I also think that as superintendent of, of public instruction, I, I will endeavor at all times to to listen carefully. I, I really think the sort of the key elements of leadership are first you have to listen and then learn in order to lead. And by that, I mean, I really don't regard the superintendent's office as a partisan office. Yes, I'm a proud Republican. Yes, I've campaigned for the office as as a Republican candidate in winning the primary election. But really, when it comes to the education and the future of our children and our grandchildren, and I can say that as the grandfather, the papa, if you will, of six wonderful grandchildren, when it comes to to their future, to their education and their future, I really don't regard that as a partisan subject. So I want to work with anyone that has good ideas for improving our education system, expanding educational opportunity to every Arizona student, and who has the best interest of our children and students at heart. What do you see as the one to two most critical issues that need to be addressed in this position? Well, clearly we have a, an unacute and well-documented teacher shortage, and we have a yawning achievement gap as evidenced 
by the fact that 56% of Arizona third graders recently failed to score proficient in reading, the foundation of all learning, on our state standardized test, the AZ merit test. We know that that number roughly correlates with the fact that 57% of our K-12 students come from low-income households and qualify for the federal lunch program. So you know, I have very specific ideas on addressing those challenges. One, I want to ensure that our base K-12 funding, our per pupil funding, keeps pace with student enrollment growth and inflation. I want to do early on in my tenure as superintendent, I want to do a comprehensive compensation survey to benchmark the compensation, that is to say the pay and benefits of our educators and our school support personnel with their counterparts in the neighboring states in the southwest and mountain west regions because we know we have to be competitive with those states if we're going to reduce the high turnover rate, the attrition that we've experienced in teaching ranks, and if we're going to recruit and retain the best teachers for Arizona students. So those are things that I want to put in motion early on. And in terms of the achievement gap, we've got to address our biggest challenge, which is early childhood literacy. We know that due to socioeconomic circumstances, many Arizona children are being raised in poverty or near poverty. They're not getting the nourishment and developmental skills in the household. Many times they enter or start school already developmentally behind peer and grade level because they lack the phonemic awareness, the vocabulary acquisition. And those are the students that are the most disadvantaged and vulnerable segments of the student population. So what we need to do is get school districts and charters that are serving large numbers of those disadvantaged students, students, again, living in poverty, uh, students that have special needs and learning disabilities, foster children, uh, non or limited English speaking students. We have to get districts and charter schools serving large numbers of those schools additional resources so that they can intervene early with those students and provide them the, the specialized and intensive services that they need through individual and small group instruction in order to be able to catch up and for us as a state to be able to close that achievement gap. The 20 by 2020 education legislation gives teachers a 20% pay increase in three years, including 10% in 2018, and also increases funding for support staff, new textbooks, and upgraded technology and infrastructure. Do you think this is enough to make up for the recession-era cuts? If yes, why? And if no, why not? Well, it's a huge stride forward. I mean, to put things in the proper perspective, Governor Ducey inherited a $1 billion, projected $1 billion state budget deficit when he took office in January of 2015. That was, as your question suggests, directly related to the Great Recession. And, and over that decade, since the Great Recession, we added population as a state, over a half million new residents, which resulted in an enrollment increase in our K-12 schools of 70,000 additional students, while revenue to state government dropped and state funding, including for K-12 education, remained largely flat. The net effect of that, of course, is the obvious, lower per pupil funding and larger class sizes. So I'm strongly supportive of the governor's leadership first, by the way, in helping to pass or taking the leadership in passing Prop 123, which increased distributions from the Permanent Land Endowment Trust Fund, the so-called State Lands Trust, 
primarily for K-12 education, and I might add for our listeners that the State Land Trust uh, Fund has grown in value by over a billion dollars since Prop 123, even with the increased distributions. And then he followed that with his 20 by 20 proposal. So I think we're making real strides. I'm always cognizant. I'm a former member of Congress. When I served in Congress for three terms, we balanced the federal budget. But state government does not have the luxury of what Congress does, which is to run enormous deficits, which have given us a $20 trillion national debt, which, by the way, is the greatest threat to our children and grandchildren's future. So I think it's a great stride. It's, we're moving in the right direction. I want to create a dedicated funding source for the capital needs of school districts and charter schools. And by that, I mean both soft capital, equipment, materials, and hard capital. There are facility, uh, facilities and related capital improvements. I think we can do that through a public-private partnership, create that dedicated funding source, and also free up more operational dollars, since currently school districts and charter schools largely pay for their capital needs to, uh, on a you know, pay-to-go basis through their regular operational funding, I think we can free up more dollars by creating this dedicated public-private partnership, this dedicated funding source for facilities, and, and in the process free up more dollars to go into the classroom. The other thing I, I want to do is I want to address all of the unfunded, or maybe I should say underfunded mandates imposed by the federal government and even by state government on our K-12 schools that has resulted, according to the State Auditor General, which has been surveying classroom spending for the last 15 years, has resulted in just 54 cents of every K-12 dollar actually making its way into the classroom for teaching and learning. Uh, because of my experience in education at every level, local, state, and federal, again, I think I'm ideally prepared to comb through those mandates and eliminate the ones that are outdated or which have no, or truly an unfunded mandate because there's no corresponding funding source or appropriation. I'm speaking with Frank Riggs, candidate for superintendent of public instruction. I'd like to ask you what impact, either positive or negative, do you believe charter schools have on neighborhood district schools? Well, they have certainly created a more competitive K-12 sector, but perhaps that question ought to be rephrased, really, because I think the question is, is what impact, positive or negative, have charter schools have on parental school choice? In other words, giving parents who have a fundamental right and the flip side of the same coin responsibility to choose and direct their child's education. And by the way, that right is codified in Arizona law under our Parental Bill of Rights statute. I think on the whole, I mean, in fact, to back up for a moment, I mean, charter schools are not school districts. They are nonprofit corporations. They were created to be able to be more flexible in their school design, their educational model, their curriculum, and in exchange for having more flexibility, are expected to produce good academic and financial results. I've always viewed charter schools as the R&D, the research and development arm of K-12 education, because in many instances, charter schools have created best practices and certainly have stimulated competition, which I think is a good thing, between charter schools, district schools, and even private schools. So what we want is a competitive education marketplace that give parents the full range of choices, you know, all the different educational options for their children. Because at the end of the day, I believe, again, parents have a fundamental duty and right to direct their child's education. I don't think there's any higher authority than parents, and I don't think any one person or 
our organization has the right to declare itself the education decider or the gatekeeper for parents. Proposition 305 is coming up on the November ballot on November 6th. A yes vote will uphold current legislation, which would phase in an expansion of the state's empowerment scholarship accounts. Those are called ESAs. And this is to make all public school students eligible to apply for an ESA. And if awarded, these educational funds can be used to attend neighborhood district schools, charter schools, religious schools, or non-religious private schools. A no vote will repeal the current legislation that will phase in an expansion of the state's ESAs to all students. What is your opinion of Prop 305 and why? Sure. First, first let me just explain that, that um, the, the ESA cannot be used. Um, for a, a charter school. So I think there's a, a little bit of a misunderstanding there. But that said, I'm opposed to Prop 305, and I will tell you why. It is the result, or was the result, of, of what I consider to be flawed state legislation. Legislation that started out, by the way, on the pretense of creating universal ESAs, but because of uh, legislative compromise resulted in, in the expansion of ESAs being capped at an additional 30,000 uh, ESAs. But any notion that we would have universal ESAs, vouchers as some people like to call them, I think is, uh, is you know, unreasonable. I, I, I just don't think that is a practical notion since our public district schools serve the great majority of students, 85% plus of our 1.2 million K-12 school children attend a public district school or a traditional school, if you will. So any notion that we would go to universal ESAs would, that might you know, eviscerate or gut our public school district system, uh, I think, is, is you know, again, impractical and misguided. The fact of the matter is that our public uh, school districts, that massive infrastructure that we have across the state, has been built and maintained at a cost of trillions of dollars by by taxpayers over a century. And it just, again, it's not realistic that we would move to universal ESAs. That's, that's one reason I'm opposed to Prop 305. Another reason that I'm opposed to Prop 305 is I advise behind the scenes that if we were to expand the ESA program beyond the current categories of eligible students, and those are students with special needs or learning disabilities, foster children, the dependent children of active duty military, and children or students that are attending a D or F ranked school on the state school report card. Those are the current eligible categories. And my advice was if we were going to expand ESA, that we means test the expansion to give low income families priority and parity. And why do I say that? Because low-income families, they have fewer school choice options in their neighborhoods and communities. They are typically less mobile than more affluent families, so less able to avail themselves of school choices, you know, other uh, types of schools in the, you know, in the vicinity or in the, the community. I also said that if we were the means tested to give, again, low-income families priority, the dollar amount of the ESA should be increased to better defray private school tuition, even though many private and parochial schools, for that matter, 
uh, provide tuition waivers or tuition assistance. And lastly, there was a testing provision tucked in to the compromise legislation that says uh, any private school, I'm thinking, for example, of Push Ridge Christian Academy in, in Oral Valley as an example, but any private school that enrolls 50 or more ESA-funded students must give a nationally normed test to all students and publicly report the, the aggregate test results. Uh, and I've heard from parents that are concerned, parents who have purposely chosen a private school education for their child, in many cases a private religious or sectarian education for, for their child, that they believe that could be the camel's nose under the tent, that it could lead to governmental inter intervention and regulation by the Arizona Department of Education of their child's private school. And, and as they've put it to me, they do not want to see their child's private school turned into a public school. So I think that's a valid argument as well. Another reason why I'm a no on Prop 305, the, the no vote essentially returns that legislation to the legislature so we can take a fresh look under what circumstances we should expand the ESD program in Arizona. I'm speaking with Frank Riggs, candidate for superintendent of public instruction. District schools, public schools, are required to provide student transportation, school lunches for children from low-income families, and to hire certified teachers or those working toward certification. Charter schools do not have the same requirements, should they? No, because charter schools are not district schools. As I said earlier, uh, charter schools are tax-exempt nonprofit corporations. Arizona, one of the few states that allowed a for-profit entity to actually be able to get a charter and operate a charter school, I don't think that's right, and I think that that should be phased out. But the great majority of Arizona charter schools are tax-exempt nonprofit corporations. The whole idea behind a charter school is that to free it up from a, any kind of excessive regulation so that they are in the position to be able to innovate. Now, I think I know of many charter schools that do provide student transportation. In some cases, it's, it's a joint transportation service with other schools. I know of charter schools that do provide school lunches. I know of charter schools that do seek the federal categorical funding that flows into our state for K-12 education. And many charter schools hire certified teachers, but they also want that flexibility, that flexibility that comes, for example, alternative credentialing, being able to hire a subject matter expert with real-life experience to be able to teach in in their school without having to go through an extensive, you know, additional educational and certification process. Uh, so uh, the, the idea of making a charter school look and act exactly like a district school sort of defeats the whole purpose behind the charter school's concept to begin with. And I would just, you know, cite two statistics as to why I think charter schools are mainstream and they're here to stay. One is the obvious, which is the parents of 188,000 K-12 students attending Arizona charter schools have chosen a particular charter school and its educational model as the best and most appropriate education for their child, uh, you know, number one, and most importantly. Secondly, some of our charter schools are among the highest performing schools in our state and our country. So many, many charter schools in our state are doing really excellent work. There is this open question about charter school governance because there, we've seen some headlines and we know that a few bad actors 
uh, are all it takes to give the entire charter school sector a black eye. So I have said that all charter schools, as a condition of getting uh, an initial charter, the grant of the charter from the State Board of Charter Schools, which is the regulator of Arizona charter schools, or as a condition of getting a charter extension, all charter schools must have a majority of disinterested parties on the charter-holding governing board, that is to say, truly independent members on the governing board with no relationships or ties of any kind, family, business, or otherwise, to the charter school founder, that all charter school board members must have formal training on nonprofit and charter school governance, including their legal and fiduciary responsibilities, and their duty to carefully examine any kind of related party transactions to guard against self-dealing. I think we have to, to implement those reforms. I intend to push for those reforms early in my tenure as superintendent of public instruction as a member of the State Board for Charter Schools. I've been speaking with Frank Riggs, candidate for superintendent of public instruction. Thank you so much, Mr. Riggs, for being with us today. We're very pleased that you listened today. We hope you learned something new about these candidates. You've been listening to Kathy Hoffman and Frank Riggs, who are the two candidates for Superintendent of Public Instruction. Tune in next week at the same time, and we'll cover more important election information. This is KXCI 91.3 FM. All episodes of this series are on kxci.org after they have broadcast. This show is recorded and produced by Amanda Schager. If you're interested in the League of Women Voters, which we hope you are, you can go to our website, lwvgt.org. Bye-bye.